You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode 35 for February 17th, 2017. Start off with a market update because I know you guys are watching the markets just like me. So let's get into it. Um, we have a price now on Bitstamp of 1054. That's in USD. Euro, we're pushing that thousand euro mark. And I actually think there is some resistance there. Uh, if you look back two weeks, we hit like um, 1,002 euros. Right now we're sitting at 99 euros. I think there is resistance on the euro side. That is what's kind of holding us back here. Um, but the underwriting story of all of this this whole market stuff right now is just the dislocation of the Chinese markets. So uh, China is not withdrawing or they're not allowing withdrawals on their exchanges for 30 days. And we've seen this affect the price of Bitcoin over there. No one wants to buy. Are you going to buy Bitcoin just to sell it later? Uh, because you can't withdraw your BTC. You can only withdraw CNY. So the the price on the CNY exchanges is suppressed. It does not reflect reality at this time, including the futures. So there's lots of um, mayhem going on. Also, people are looking at um, longing the OKCoin futures and shorting the Bitfinex spot. So there's a lot of shorts on the books over at, at Bit, uh, Bitfinex, and there has been for this last few days. As the price goes up and these shorts get margin called or they close their position, it gives a lot of fuel to the price. And so we've seen this go all the way up from, you know, the high 900s, which I was calling on my last episode. I thought we needed to consolidate in the, the high nines. And now we are at 1050. I also tweeted out that I don't know if we will ever see a three-digit price in Bitcoin again. That's USD price. Because we have all of this speculation from the ETF. I personally think the ETF is going to get approved. So, um, you know, if that does get approved, we could see 2000 3000 At least the higher $1,000, you know, like 1800 for a price. So I think that the three-digit price for Bitcoin USD is pretty safe at this point. Plus, there was millions of dollars on BitMEX guarding, you know, right at a thousand, guarding that nine hundred, not wanting it to drop below that. So I mean, I think there's a ton of volume. There's a ton of cash buyers out there. I'm very bullish on the price. Uh, at least until March. I mean, as we get through this and maybe there's some news that comes out, maybe something gets leaked. Maybe they actually have their decision early. I don't know. But until that comes about, I am bullish on the price. Okay. Um, I've been quoting the CNY price, but I think that's, uh, not the best thing to quote at this point. 
So I'm going to quote the J, uh, JPY price, which is 21, uh, oh, sorry, 121,500 is where we're sitting at JPY. Okay. Um, that out of the way, let's talk about some volumes. Now the local Bitcoins volume is sitting at 19, I think it's $19.3 million over the last seven days, which is again, not an all time high, but it is the second highest week ever. We did have the highest week at the beginning of the year at 21 million, but this is the second highest week ever at 19, oh, 19.4 million dollars on local bitcoins. Um, the 24 hour volume on chain, let's take a look at that was 136 million. I mean, th these are big numbers. This is not an all time high either, but it is consistent. The average is going way up and don't forget the average Bitcoin transaction is over one Bitcoin in size it's over a thousand dollars so all these people that talk about you know one dollar transactions five dollar transactions ten they they're missing the point here the main thing is these big dollar transactions the holding the savings people are wanting to save in bitcoin and that is what the uh, main trajectory of bitcoin is at this point okay difficulty is Still pretty strong. We're going to go up. It looks like in the next today, we're going to be up another 3%. So not a gigantic increase like we've seen recently. 16%, 7%, you know, but it's healthy. It's not going down. It's continuing to go up. So anything around 2 or 3% and higher is healthy for Bitcoin. Also, I mean, you saw all this new hashing power come online and you also saw the Bitcoin unlimited numbers go up. But now that the hashing power isn't being added to the network, uh, we see Bitcoin unlimited going down in their their blocks, their hashing power. OK, so where does that leave Segwit? Segwit's still around 24 percent, 25 percent. And. Uh, Bitcoin Limited down at 17%. It might even be 15% by the time you guys listen to this because it's dropping pretty fast. But add those together. 25 plus 15, you get 40. So a majority of the network does not want to upgrade. And I talk about that later in the show. And you'll understand why I'm mentioning that now. Okay, so admin notes. Patreon doing well. My goal is two to five new people every week and we are hitting that. It might look like we're not because we have 10 patrons on Patreon right now, but hey, I have a lot of interest with the Bitcoin side. We have three new members that are paying Bitcoin to me. If you would like to do that, get get in touch with me and I'll set you up. We have a minimum of a dollar a month. Okay, to get access to extra content on Patreon. I do a whole other episode every week for Patreon for you guys and get more personal, get more in depth on, you know, drill down on certain topics. Uh, also, I can talk about all coins on there. Just let me know what you guys want to talk about. Um, if you are donating, Right now, or your Patreon member, thank you so much. It, it means the world to me that people actually want to, they actually like my content enough to donate, uh, uh, their hard earned money to what I do. 
But if you're donating a dollar a month, consider going bumping up to that five dollars. If when we get to five hundred dollars a month, which is it's far away, granted, and I don't know if we'll ever get there, but with your help, we will. If you share out the content and you know share out the show and stuff, we'll get there. But when we reach five hundred dollars a month, I'm going to be donating ten percent of that every month to Bitcoin projects. If we get to $2,000 a month, I'm still going to donate 10% forever to Bitcoin projects out there that I think need it, that deserve it. They're doing hard work. Um, you know, open source stuff, contributing to the, to, to Bitcoin. So, and if you do this $5 a month, then you get a, a say on where that goes. So that's, that's your little push to go to the $5 from $1 a month. Okay. Let's get into the show. Enough enough of me pumping my Patreon stuff. Let's go to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I wanted to start off this show with um, discussion on something I've been thinking about lately. Because I've noticed that a lot of content producers out there, you know, you have the, the B, the Bitcoin uncensored guys, you have Tone Vase, you have, uh, I don't know, a, a bunch of other people, one, the one vortex, you have, uh, all sorts of, of content producers out there and they are, growing in popularity even the the bitcoin meister adam meister everybody is is kind of in the same place with understanding bitcoin and they're all bitcoin maximalists and and things like that but how did how did we all get there how did we all kind of come to the same conclusion and have a lot we share very similar uh, understandings of what Bitcoin is well. I put <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks, and I put together what I am calling like the the Bitcoin maximalist roadmap. Okay, um, it's three phases that a lot of people have gone through. I think we're all of the same generation in Bitcoin, and that would be like late 2011 to early 2013. So prior to the final Gox bubble that, you know, the people that came in during that run up aren't necessarily in this generation yet. But, um, yeah, so we're all kind of from the same generation, I think. And we've all gone through similar, um, processes since that time. I, I want to say it started like in, during that run up and after in the, in the bear market, the two year bear market that Bitcoin went through from late 2013 to late 2015, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons and we are still here, right? We didn't leave. We're still here and we've, we've taken, um, our experience, we've taken, we've researched, we've taken evidence and we formed our opinions. And so there's a group of people here. And it's not just the content producers, but it's, I think it's a huge, uh, 
block of people right now in Bitcoin that are on this Bitcoin maximalist roadmap, uh, at least at the same position that a lot of the content producers are. So I just wanted to run through that real quick. I'm already going longer than I wanted to um, on that introduction. Okay, so step one, I think, was uh, defined by buttcoiners. And the most famous one that I can think of is Tim Swanson. So he came out in 2014 and, and was a huge skeptic of Bitcoin. I mean, a skeptic of the economics of Bitcoin, the decentralization, why it is good. And he made us really question ourselves. And all Bitcoiners did that. They asked hard questions. And some people just blew it off. Okay, but some people dug in and really wanted to figure out why this is the case. Why, you know, is there any truth behind their arguments? You know, we're approaching this scientifically kind of. Uh, and so we had to learn the economic arguments of decentralization. We liked decentralization. We thought it was great and all that. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not the core developers or anything or, or you know, Greg Maxwell or, or any of these people, Peter Willa. We are just laymen kind of looking at this, just normal people, and we had to build this argument for decentralization. Why is it good economically for this? Uh, and I think we built some really good uh, positions, some really hard uh, positions that are hard to argue against. But of course, some people didn't do that and they were left behind. They're still stuck on decent, you know, uh, they couldn't answer the skeptics, and so they went the private blockchain route, uh, the distributed database route, uh, and we see these all over the place. Tim Swanson famously went to R3. Mike Hearn might not have been able to answer these questions, so he went to R3. There's a bunch of people out there that uh, got stuck in this, and they, they decided to go private blockchains. Plus, there's money involved, so they were uh, financially incentivized to stop learning at this point okay the next step is the economics against decentralization so once we learned hey you know this is decentralization can work in these cases and we learned these arguments well then we are hit with decentralize all the things ethereum um, blockchainers blockchain maximalists and um we had we were forced once again to examine these arguments um and we came out f finding you know we we weighed uh arguments for decentralization of everything against the lessons that we learned from the the buckcoiners and we came out believing in like this unique character of bitcoin and that is where the the bitcoin maximalist was kind of born at this point uh, and so the superiority and uniqueness of Bitcoin um, was starting to get fleshed out by the layperson of our generation in Bitcoin. Uh, again, some people were left behind and they didn't learn lessons against decentralization. They're still stuck on decentralized assets, decentralized uh, all of these, all the things. Uh, altcoins are Blah, 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 all this stuff, their, their work. But, uh, there's again another financial incentive to be stuck in this position. You can raise VC money. You can do these projects. You can have big launches, ICOs, 
right? So these people have been stuck here. And I don't know if they're actually stuck in this position or, you know, like there are unable to learn or maybe they ha did learn but they they have dollar signs in their eyes and they can they they want to make some money out of it so they they purposely holding others trying to hold other people back on this like bitcoin maximalist roadmap but yeah there are some people there uh some catch words from this are you know altcoins or bitcoin 2.0 would be a catch word that you can kind of uh signals that this guy hasn't uh progressed through this stage also currency competition that's a big one from the dash community and things um so they haven't they haven't um examined their economics here and they haven't moved on to the next stage okay so then this this the stage that we're just exiting right now i believe is understanding the apolitical nature of bitcoin and i've i've said this for a while but i haven't really quite grasped uh, how monumental this is until very recently. So, um, Bitcoin is completely apolitical. And that looks political. When you're, when you're looking at it from a statist perspective and you look at Bitcoin that's completely open, completely decentralized, um, without any judgment for a transaction or for people, or anything like that. There's zero judgment in Bitcoin. Um, it's completely apolitical, but it looks political when you look, when your, when your viewpoint is from a very political stance. And this also can be wrapped up with the arguments of scaling. So people think, um, that, uh, how to scale. The governance model, governance is political, governance is politics, but Bitcoin is completely apolitical. It doesn't matter who you are. You cannot put your politics onto Bitcoin. It will not accept the upgrade. Um, we look at, um, I mean, there's lots of things you can look at for this, but people are starting to realize the apolitical nature of Bitcoin and what that means for scaling, what that means for the future. Um, and people have been left behind here as well because it's very uncomfortable to be completely apolitical and be accepting and to let go of your, your positions, your preconceived notions, your morality even, right? It's very difficult for people to do that. And that's where we're at right now is people having to let go of politics and be, and see this completely neutral thing that is Bitcoin and understand that that's very hard. And people have gotten stuck there. They're BU supporters. They're big blocks now supporters. They're the, uh, Jihan Wu from the, Bitmain, where he is, you know, completely political. This is a completely political argument to him. Um, even Roger Ver is having a hard time with this. And Eric Voorhees, who I'll talk about in a second. They, they tout themselves as like libertarian anarchist types. A apolitical position. But they cannot get over the pol bringing their politics to Bitcoin. They cannot let go 
and build and let Bitcoin figure its own way through. That's, that's what I have to say about that. They're stuck on this, this, uh, apolitical nature, I think. Okay. Let's talk about Eric Voorhees because, um, <laughs> I have <laughs> talked about him in the, on, in the past on the show. I even recorded a long rant against him, but I decided not to publish it back in the day. But he is, and, and he's been kind of absent from the scene for a while. And I thought, good, maybe he's doing some self-reflection here, right? And coming along with the rest of us learning. But no, that's not the case. He had a, he has a blog post out and I want to read a few sections of it because I think it's pretty important. And then we can talk about it. So let me bring this up. So, I mean, this is pure politics. When, when I read this to you, you'll sense the politics in this. It's titled The True Cost of Bitcoin Transactions. And what he did was he took uh, five blocks in a row, starting about... Uh, well, he started at block 451871 and took the average transaction fee for the next five blocks and he came out with an 83 cent average. Okay. And this is what he says. Is that quote unquote too expensive? That's a judgment call. And sincere people can disagree about what is quote unquote too expensive. It depends what one uses Bitcoin for. Um, some people indeed are using Bitcoin to move normal amounts of money around, i.e. like peer-to-peer -peer cash system. This doesn't refer to microtransactions, which are fractions of a dollar and have been impractical in Bitcoin for years. Rather, it refers to casual payments of $1 to $50 in value, which make up the vast majority of human economic activity broadly and a great deal of Bitcoin activity specifically. A 83% or 83 cent fee doesn't matter for a $2,500 payment. But it matters if you're sending $7 to a friend. Indeed, it will actually preclude a $3 daily wage payment. Consider that a great way to make Bitcoin centralized is to reduce its utility uh, to only the world's richest. And those who imagine such users to, uh, to be using Bitcoin quote-unquote wrong are perhaps not understanding what consequences that sentiment invites such users finding less utility in Bitcoin will be incentivized to go to other platforms or just stick with the status quo, fiat. How tragic that someone would actually prefer fiat. But many will if Bitcoin is too expensive to use as a peer-to-peer -peer cash system. So, on the topic of the ex uh, explicit minor fee, 83 cents is too high. Maybe 83 cents is too high, and maybe not. It depends on what a user is trying to accomplish. Um, okay, then he goes into the true cost and yada, yada, yada. But this is, this is what I have to say about this is that it's not a judgment call. Okay. It is what it is. Um, 
there is no should in Bitcoin. There is no too expensive or too slow. It is what it is. And if it's not good for that payment, don't use it. Build an alternative. Use an alternative. That is fine. You know, um, no one, and then this, this quote about that, uh, consider that a great way to make Bitcoin centralized is to reduce its utility to only the world's richest. No one has power to reduce anything or increase anything. Bitcoin is its own animal. It is what it is. Look at Segwit. Pushed by your uh, nemesis there, Eric Voorhees, is is uh, Bit, uh, Bitcoin Core. And they can't get it adopted. Look, it's at, what, 25% unlimited is at 18%. I think maybe 17% today. So that's not even 50%. So it doesn't matter. The network is refusing upgrades. It is its own animal. It is what it is. If that's too risky for you, then sell. But it's not, it, it obviously isn't too risky for you because you're holding your Bitcoins. And that is what it's good for right now is holding. Period. You go on for, you go on to tell us a story about your, uh, Civ 6 LAN party. And that you paid Steam in Bitcoin and you sat there for 25 minutes. It didn't confirm or anything. So you had to use your credit card. And then, like, you're bitching about that. Well, I can't use a lot of shit on Steam. I can't use M-Pesa. I can't use Western Union to pay for Steam. It's not what is good. It's not what works. So don't fucking use it. I don't understand. Like, why aren't you complaining about not being able to use M-Pesa on there? What? Just because you want to use Bitcoin? You're going to complain about it? It is what it is. If it is too risky for you, oh, and then it goes on here, uh, uh, there are some in the community who will read the above about the Civ 6 party, and they'll actually think, meh, what's the big deal? Or perhaps respond, just wait two years for lightning. Cool. Tell me when I'm trying to play Civ 7. Okay. Well, if it's too risky to wait, if it's not your cup of tea to hold Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you who who is willing to take the risk, millionaires and billionaires ready to invest. The people that have approached BitFury trying to buy $20 million worth of Bitcoin over the counter. Hedge funds, pension funds. They're all ready to come into Bitcoin and take the risk and hold. And if you can't, good, get out of here. Stop trying to bring your politics and what you think Bitcoin should be. Bitcoin is apolitical and it doesn't care what anybody thinks. Not a group of people, not a single person. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. Take it or leave it. Because if you don't take it, I guarantee you five people with a bigger investment waiting to get in. So do what you want. Don't complain about the freaking weather. This is you know, some people might say, oh, uh, 
I, I don't like the, the temperature today. It should be warmer or it should be colder. That is a stupid argument because it, you cannot change it. Move, move south, get to a warmer climate or move north into Canada for a cooler climate. You know, that would be the, like moving to an altcoin. Do it. But you can't sit there and just complain about nature. The, the bottom line here is that you have not grown. Eric Voorhees has not grown with this apolitical phase of Bitcoin where you let go and you let it scale. Let it, let it grow. And on, on Patreon, I was talking about, uh, how Bitcoin is kind of, um, resembling an organism. It's resembling a, um, artificial entity, not necessarily artificial intelligence, but an entity that wants to survive and grow. And I think the internet is similar to that. Does it want to grow? Yeah. Okay. It'll adopt voice over IP. If it doesn't want to grow, it won't accept something. Okay. But as if there's enough demand throughout the entire economy for something, it will scale with that. If there's enough demand right now for more transactions, people will use, um, trusted lightning networks. Maybe it doesn't need trustless lightning right now with SegWit. If there was a demand for more of these transactions, you could use lightning right now. But it's not. So the evidence does not back up your hypothesis, Mr. Voorhees. It does not. And it doesn't matter how badly you want to change the evidence. That is the facts. Your hypothesis is wrong. Oh my God. Okay, I'm done ranting on that. Let's move on to something else. Oh man, if you guys disagree with me, tell me. So I guess my idea of Japan being a big player in Bitcoin is catching on big time. Um, uh, last year, middle of last year, I was started talking about Japan taking over, uh, China's role, you know, really pushing Bitcoin adoption. And, and that, you know, nobody else at the time was saying anything about Japan. And I was the sole voice saying stuff. So, um, now we're seeing it just explode. Uh, two recent articles here, um, Chinese megabanks. This is from uh, CryptoCoin News. Obviously, links in the show notes, but they're talking about the three largest banks in Japan have now invested in a Bitcoin exchange. That is as if, um, well, I guess like NASDAQ, they invested in, in Coinbase, right? Or something like that. Some of these big ones invested in Coinbase. But... Um, this is a pure Bitcoin play. This isn't like JP Morgan using Quorum, which is an Ethereum fork, uh, to build their own thing. This is a pure Bitcoin play. 
we also have that GMO. They are the biggest con- like tech conglomerate in uh, Japan. Um, and they are going to be opening an exchange. Also, they are ha- going to, they're developing a wallet for Bitcoin. And I'm guessing for tokens. Cause tokens are big over there. What else? Oh, they, they have the big regulation that's going to go into effect that basically is a hands off policy on Bitcoin. It's going to be the most friendly uh, jurisdiction in the world. And there's all sorts of activity happening in Japan. The volume on the exchanges is going up. I mean, a lot of the volume is fake. And I got into a little uh, back and forth on Twitter with uh, Paul underscore BTC. He was saying, watch out for this fake volume. This looks like China's fake volume is going over to Japan. And, and I I called him out on it. And I said, no, that there's real demand in or there i said the word use there's real use in japan and he so he called me on that and i said okay maybe it's not use it's demand there's real demand look at all of these big banks look at all these tokens that are going on there there's the bit girl show spells of genesis is huge um it is ripe for these types of things and especially with the Lightning Network, they're going to be doing counterparty tokens over there like crazy. And so, I've, and on this show, I've pointed out so many things that are pushing Japan towards Bitcoin. A lot of people are picking up on this. I mean, even I was listening to the whale pool stuff, and they. Phil Potter from Bifinex was saying the exact same thing as I was saying six months ago. He's he was parroting my argument, and I've I've heard a lot of people in in the space now starting to talk about this, that Japan is going to be pushing. And so, um, in a previous episode, I also said I'm looking for like some sort of Japanese culture to come into Bitcoin, and I don't know exactly what that will look like. I said you'll probably know it when you see it. Because I still have no idea what that's going to look like. But, uh, okay. Um, yeah, Japan is growing gangbusters and, and Paul underscore BTC, he, he called me on that and I, so I had to defend myself and it was good. We basically came to an agreement that, um, you know, the volume is fake, but the fundamentals are different. So the Chinese volume was a narrative, a fake narrative. There was no capital flight. At least if there is, it's a very, very insignificant. Um, you know, the capital flight can come out of China in a multitude of ways. The hardest probably being Bitcoin. And anyway, so that was a fake narrative. The, the volume was fake. Everything is fake in about the, the China story of Bitcoin except the mining. Okay, the mining is real demand, and I expect that to move now. Especially, uh, I mean, if I were other countries, like you have to start talking about game theory on this stuff. If I'm another country, and I'm looking at Bitcoin in the future, maybe this year or next year, you're looking at Bitcoin to come into your country, then you're going to want to give incentives for people to mine. And you can draw that mining out of out of china very easily 
I mean, there's lots of places, especially with solar power getting so damn cheap, like two cents per kilowatt hour and stuff. That is, those, those things are going to be coming all around the world in the next, um, you know, three or four years. Those plants are going to be started to be completed. And so mining will be able to go anywhere. Um, it will be decentralized. So right now, the, the only thing that's true about the China narrative is the mining. And so the fundamentals are completely different here. Japan versus China. Now, Japan's volume is a lot of trading bots and fake, quote unquote, fake volume right now, trading back and forth to each other. I haven't looked into their fee structure, but I'm sure it's it's uh, to incentivize more liquidity, at least the appearance of more liquidity. But also there's a much longer tradition of forex trading in japan i mean behind new york and london i think tokyo is probably number three and there's a lot of financial stuff that's happened in tokyo over the last 70 years and so china is about 50 years behind japan so i mean the fundamentals are just completely different and i wanted to touch on that and also say hey japan is here to stay in Bitcoin. Next thing I want to touch on was my uh, appearance on the Bitcoin News Show uh, with the one Vortex, uh, World Crypto Network. Great guy. You know, he always uh, invites me on. A lot of times I can't make it, but uh, he he invites me on. You know, he has an open show. I, he's been having lots of great guests. Like this time he had Andrew DeSantis and Ryan Shea on there and i was like oh man i'm these are like big names what the hell am i doing on here who cares what i have to say <laughs> but um i mean these these were heavy hitters so i was i was honored to be on this episode and we talked a lot of the topics we talked about on there i'll put a link to it in the show notes so you guys can can see that but a lot of the to- topics we talked about were kind of connected right uh, there was the we talked about the etf we talked about the dcg um scaling medium post what else we talked about all sorts of stuff but it all went into this one narrative i think that that i came away with and that was that people are starting to understand what the next phase of scaling is going to be. People are coming to the realization that it is not blockchain. It is not, uh, you know, payments. And a lot of these CEOs are frustrated that it's not payments. They're frustrated with the lack of space inside of a block. But people are starting to come to the understanding that that is what is going to happen. And this ETF is an example of what the use case is going to be. And that's savings and holding. I mean, everything has to go in order here. 
it has to go from like savings uh you know you have to have some people save then other people want to save or other people want to accept that money and so then you have some adoption merchant adoption a little bit going on but then you have to have more people saving more people you know this network effect of holding and this network effect of savings that is the underlier of 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 money and we're when we go up to yeah maybe we're not going to get segwit right now and we're not we're definitely not going to get bitcoin unlimited right now um but maybe what we need is to go to a hundred billion market cap first. <laughs> oh yeah, just go a hundred billion market cap. That's easy. Just let's let's just do that. Uh, so that's what I think though. Is Bitcoin is is going to scale through these ETFs first? So the value is going to scale. The investor side, the holding side, the saving side, that is going to scale first. And you don't need, for this ETF, you don't need a 8 megabyte block. Okay? Because you could do most of that off, off chain. And if somebody wants to get delivery of, or take a, whatever you call that, where you get your actual share of, of ETF, then they're going to have to pay a $5 fee or something. I mean, whatever the case is, they don't care. So Bitcoin can support that amount of money and that amount, that type of scaling. And once we get to a hundred billion dollar market cap, more people are going to be interested, more developers coming in, more adopters coming in, more people want to be in here. And it's going to push the demand to open this up to get SegWit passed. To get Lightning Network pushed through. I mean, and all this development is not stopping. Don't get me wrong. We're continuing to develop Bitcoin, or we. The men that are better than I are continuing to develop Bitcoin. And Lightning Network, and Mimblewimble, and Tumblebit, and Sidechains, and Lightning Network, and yada yada, on and on and on and on and on. And so when that, when we are a hundred billion dollar market cap, we're, we're, you can't even imagine the, the user uprising, the popular uprising that's going to happen for scaling, for, for SegWit. But we don't feel that right now because there isn't this popular uprising, right? When, when there's a flood of agreement and a flood of, uh, real demand for this it's going to happen and so i thought this whole that whole uh bitcoin news show was kind of along that narrative at least that's what i was trying to spin as uh, as much as i was or as little as i was talking i didn't talk a ton but you know some of the people that go on those shows they they talk for 15 minutes straight and it's more fun to go back and forth. I want someone to talk back to me and then I'll talk back to them. And, and here we go back and forth. But anyway, that's the narrative that I saw building in that show from some mainstream guys, some headliners like uh, Andrew DeSantis. So, yeah, I thought it was good. Good show.
I wanted to say a few things here about the Janet Yellen testimony that was in front of Congress the other day. Yes, I am a nerd. I watched the whole thing. I fast forwarded a few parts, but I, I did watch most of it. Uh, I put a link in the show notes so you guys can go to that. I also in the show notes put some times of things that I'm going to talk about here uh, throughout this clip. And you can see where, uh, what I'm talking about. Okay, at about the 20 minute mark, she said this. At our upcoming meetings, the committee will evaluate whether employment and inflation are continuing to evolve in line with these expectations in which case a further adjustment of the federal funds rate would likely be appropriate. The committee's view that gradual increases in the federal funds rate will likely be appropriate reflects the expectation that the neutral federal funds rate, that is, the interest rate that is neither expansionary nor contractionary and that keeps the economy operating on an even keel, will rise somewhat over time. Current estimates of the neutral rate are well below pre-crisis levels, a phenomenon that may reflect slow productivity growth, subdued economic growth abroad, strong demand for safe longer-term assets, and other factors. The committee anticipates that the depressing effect of these factors will diminish somewhat over time, raising the neutral funds rate albeit to levels that are still low by historical standards. That said, the economic outlook is uncertain and monetary policy is not on a preset course. FOMC participants will adjust their assessments of the appropriate path for the federal funds rate in response to changes to the economic outlook and associated risks as informed by incoming data. What I think is so amazing about that is they're talking about a neutral rate of interest. And that is another word, another name for that is the natural interest rate. What the market would be at if it wasn't being fiddled with. And they're talking about this neutral rate of interest as if it is a great thing because that is like equilibrium. Well, duh. That's what people on the, uh, anti-Fed, anti-monetary policy side have been saying forever that you're screwing with nature. You're screwing with the natural business cycle here. Trying to um, make the business, you know, get rid of the business cycle, which is not possible. It's like trying to fight the seasons. Yes, you can. You can go to another country. You can fly south for the winter, but you're not going to be stop the seasons. And uh, now they're going back to this neutral rate. It's like they're rediscovering what people have been saying for many, many years. Okay, and then two minutes later, this is what she has to say. Also, changes in fiscal policy or other economic policies could potentially affect the economic outlook. Of course, it is too early to know what policy changes will be put in place or how their economic effects will unfold. 
while it is not my intention to opine on specific tax or spending proposals, I would point to the importance of improving the pace of longer-run economic growth and raising American living standards with policies aimed at improving productivity. I would also hope that fiscal policy changes will be consistent with putting U.S. fiscal accounts on a sustainable trajectory. In any event, it is important to remember that fiscal policy is only one of the many factors that can influence the economic outlook and the appropriate course of monetary policy. She's calling for fiscal spending here. Um, Is she conceding that the Fed is not all-powerful? That the Fed can't make a difference? There is a subtle meme or subtle theme throughout this whole uh, speech here is that the Fed has done what they can. It is no longer their fault. They have gotten their their dual mandate taken care of, you know, maximum uh, employment and 2% inflation. They're at like 1.9, they say. That's the official measure, which they can make anything. If they wanted to make it 1.7, they could fucking make it 1.7. If they want to make it 2.5, they could make it 2.5. It doesn't matter. It's just what they tell you it is. And they say, oh yeah, it's still at 1.9. We're doing a good job. Well, no one knows. Same, actually, it's the same damn thing for the unemployment rate. At 4.9 or 5%, whatever it is, um, it, that could be whatever they say. They drop people out of the uh, labor force or they bring them in. You know, they count certain people or they don't. And who even knows who they're counting and how they're counting? I mean, they could make it whatever the heck they wanted to. We could be at 12% unemployment. I think the U6, which is uh, a less strict measure of unemployment, like includes underemployment when you want a full-time job, but you only have a part-time job, that's at 10%. So it matters how you measure this. And they can say, we've done a good job because they measured it a certain way to get the numbers they wanted. It's called goal seek. They've, these numbers have been uh, put into a spreadsheet and goal seeked out. Exactly what they want us, they will want the mean to say. It's all forward guidance. It's all propaganda. And here she's calling for fiscal spending. We can only do so much because, uh, you know, monetary policy can only do so much. Now we need the government to spend money. That's what she's saying. You know, they, they have their dual mandate, but now their dual mandate isn't getting us to the place we want, apparently. There needs to be a dual mandate plus. So we need to target these numbers plus the fiscal spending needs to be correct. Uh, so you're saying that you can't get this objective by yourself? Then why the hell do do we even need you? God, this this part particular in particular really got me going. Okay, um, at minute 48, they talk about algorithmic interest rates. The Taylor Rule. Here's what they say. Thank you. Senator Reid. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Chair, for your leadership. Uh, some of my 
colleagues and the, the Congress have called on the Federal Reserve to use a formula, a very strict formula in setting interest rates. That many times they refer to the Taylor rule. Uh, could you explain to us how this would affect uh, particularly working Americans? I mean, how do we – would it be good or bad, and how do we explain its ramifications to our constituents? Well, right now, the Taylor rule would – call for a short-term interest rate somewhere between three and a half and four percent, which is obviously a much higher value of the federal funds rate than the FOMC has deemed appropriate given the needs of the economy. Um, I believe we would have a much weaker economy uh, if in the last number of years we had followed the dictates of that rule. Um, unemployment would be substantially higher, the labor market would be weaker, and instead of inflation, which is running below 2 percent, um, and, and we want to see it move up to our 2 percent objective, I believe inflation would likely uh, be lower than it is now. So we'd see fewer jobs, uh, higher mortgage interest rates, uh, a weaker economy if we were essentially just automatically following a formula. That's right. I um, recently, a few weeks ago, gave a speech at Stanford where I tried to explain why I thought uh, it was appropriate to adjust the recommendations of rules like that to take into account, for example, the fact that um, not only the FOMC but most outside forecasters believe that the so-called neutral rate of interest um, has been unusually low um, in the aftermath of the crisis, and uh, the Taylor Rule would assume that it's at 2 percent. Current estimates um, would put that estimate closer to zero. So this has been coming up a lot recently uh, since the financial crisis, and, and I think over the last uh, couple years with the influence of Bitcoin and its you know, algorithmic money issuance that's built into the system. Um, they feel some heat from that. And they all know exactly about Bitcoin. Um, they know Bitcoin is algorithmically um, issues money. Um, you know, the monetary policy is set as well as not having these counterparty institutions. And so they are um, hammering this over and over. I think for sure this was a planted question. First off, the Senator Reed or whoever answer, asked this question, he didn't even pronounce it right. He said Taylor rule instead of the Taylor rule. You can go back and listen to that. Um, and she was very prepared right away, even talked about one of her past speeches. Um, and in his second question, which I didn't play here, but in his second question, she's reading right off a script to answer it. She knows what question he's going to ask her. These are planted. Um, you know, he's, and he's, the way he asks it, like, how can we explain this to our constituents? Yada, yada, yada. Um, that's the other question that I didn't play. Uh, it, it's totally planted. They are scared of this algorithmic, um, monetary policy. It makes them look silly. They know for sure they know about it because, um, Krugman and his ilk, this, he's in this uh, same group of central bankers and, and current Nobel laureates in, in economics. 
he he commonly cites and other people commonly cite an article that I've talked about in the past on the show, which is uh, titled, I wish Bitcoin would die in a fire. They know about Bitcoin. They hate Bitcoin. It threatens their system. It threatens the legitimacy of their positions, of their uh, jobs. Um, and so, you know, she's saying that this algorithmic trading isn't perfect. It needs to be um, uh, fiddled with. <laughs> if if we would implement something like this, we would have to have human involvement. She didn't say those specific words, obviously, but that's what she was getting at. And uh, there's roles for these counterparties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, they, I think this is directly targeted at digital currencies and um, you know th this whole meme against the power uh, of the central banks that we would be much better off having a trustless uh, system that people could opt into and you know that that's what I got from that part I could be totally off base on that but um, you know I know they definitely know about Bitcoin and how it works so they're they have to have something in there, some planted question in there where they talk about that the set monetary policy like this isn't the answer. But of course they don't know the answer. <laughs> and they'll tell you that everything's freaking uncertain, everything's likely or unlikely. They can never nail down anything. They just know they know when something's wrong, but they don't never know when something's right. So take that for what it's worth. All right, uh, let's go on to a later part here. Two minutes, or sorry, two hours and 14 minutes in. She talks about productivity. And Senator Kennedy tries to hold her feet to the fire a little bit and get some straight answers. Um, trying to drill down on the question like, what is your job here? <laughs> what What are you trying to do? It's a little comic relief, but I think it's the best questions, uh, best questioning period of the entire thing, the entire testimony. So. Let's go into that. Senator Kennedy. Madam Chair, I'm over here. Yes, I am with you. Why is the economy growing so slowly? Um, so the economy's potential to grow um, is largely determined by the growth of the labor force and by productivity growth output per worker. And labor force growth has slowed. Uh, we have an aging population, and labor force growth is relatively slow. And productivity growth um, in recent years has been uh, depressingly slow. Um, so I guess over the last six years, Business sector productivity has grown at an average of only one half percent per year. Okay, so let me ask you. I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, I've got I've just got five minutes. So it's late. Well, we're we're at almost full employment, aren't we? So the economy, for a number of years, has been growing faster than resource growth and productivity growth would have allowed. And the labor market has been tightening. Unemployment has been coming down. And labor market slack has been diminishing. Right. And that, that should gets, help the economy. Well, it's enabled us to grow at roughly 2% a year 
and the fact that labor market slack has diminished in the face of 2%. Well, we've grown at 1.9%. You consider that acceptable for the American economy, strongest economy in the history of the world? Well, when you say acceptable, I certainly wish it were faster. Um, But it's, we've seen, as I said, a slowdown in productivity growth. Yeah, Um, why, why is that? I think nobody is certain exactly why that is. Um, There are a number of elements that may play a role. We have seen a decline in dynamism in the U.S. economy, in new business formation. Uh, Some people think that the pace of underlying technological change um, has... You think it could be that people don't have the money to invest? The capital? Well, capital investment has also been quite slow. Um, what blame, if any, does the Federal Reserve System have to play in the fact that where growth is so slow? Well, our objectives that Congress has assigned us are price stability, which we interpret as 2% inflation, and maximum employment. Mm-hmm. And we have put in place an accommodative monetary policy now over many years to get the economy operating at its potential. Mm-hmm. So with high unemployment, there was a lot of slack in the labor market. The economy was falling short of operating um, at the level of output that uh, would be consistent with what a full employment economy would produce. Okay. And we've tried to remedy that, and I think we've now come close. Right. So it's growth of labor supply and productivity okay. that are going I get it. To I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but, but about, I don't have much time. Um, well, can we agree that 1.9% is not acceptable to most Americans? So I think it's a very disappointing level yeah. of performance. we can agree on that. Okay. Let me ask you this. I, I wasn't here in 08. What did the community banks do wrong in 2008? By community banks, I mean $50 billion or less. What did they do wrong? Well, um, community banks were not the reason for the financial crisis. It was um, larger institutions that took uh, risks and risks that developed outside of the banking system. Right. It resulted in the financial crisis. I think I heard you say nothing. They did nothing wrong. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, so how come they're subject to Dodd-Frank? The, 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 the same rules that apply to the people who did do something wrong, it, either it is, because of incompetence or greed. It's, it's not the case that the same rules apply to community banks that apply to larger institutions. And the most severe um, requirements in Dodd-Frank apply to the very largest and most systemic institutions The Fed and other banking regulators have tried to tailor our supervision of banks according to their risk profiles, and um, a large part of Dodd-Frank does not apply at all to community banks. I'm going to go over a little bit, Mr. Chairman. Um, You're not saying that that Dodd-Frank hasn't imposed new regulations on community banks, are you? I said it has imposed some, but I said large parts of Dodd-Frank do not apply. Right, but many parts do. Some parts do. Okay. So the water's not 12 feet deep, 
it's only 10 feet deep, but you can still drown in 10 feet of water. So we have done our best to tailor our regulations so that they're appropriate to the risk profiles of banks, but um, the regulatory burden on community banks is high. I would agree with you. But why? You just said they didn't do anything wrong in a way. I don't understand why. So we think it's important for all firms to have uh, strong capital standards, including community banks, but the most severe increases have been imposed on larger banking organizations with more complex activities. Well, did insufficient capital among the community banks cause the meltdown in a way? Um, no, but a number failed. Many failed during the crisis uh, because of the lending that yeah. they took. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more, Mr. Chairman, with your indulgence. Does it bother you that nobody, individual person, really responsible for 08 went to jail? I think those who were accountable um, should have had appropriate punishments. It's been um, up to the Justice Department to... We, the regulators can't impose criminal sanctions. That's up to the Justice Department. And um, my understanding has been that in many cases they felt they could not get criminal convictions. Do, do you understand that, and this is an opinion, do, can we, let me put it this way, can we agree that many Americans, rightly or wrongly, this is how they feel, they feel they're angry in part because they feel there are too many undeserving, I want to emphasize undeserving, I don't want to paint with too proud a brush, they feel there are too many undeserving people at the top getting special treatment. I think that is how Americans feel. Do you think that's true? I think that we have tried to put in place, following Dodd-Frank, to um, greatly increase the safety and soundness and responsibility for risk management um, and sound compensation systems, especially at the largest and most systemic institutions, and in that sense are holding them accountable. I've gone way over. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you for your indulgence, Mr. Chairman. Oh my gosh. Productivity is slow and no one knows why it's slow? Yes, we do. It's your policies. It's 0% interest rates. No one wants to save. It's this consumer-driven, um, consumption-driven policy where you want to make everybody into a hundred percent consumer. And that's how you grow the economy. No, you grow the economy through savings and higher interest rates, natural interest rates. We know exactly why productivity isn't growing because you've stifled it with taking all our savings away. That is the truth. And she knows it. Eventually they're going to get, they're going to have to admit it. That they've screwed up the savings of this economy, of the world, with all these central bankers' policies, quantitative easing, NERP, ZERP, all this stuff. They, she's basically saying, this is not our problem. 
This is not our making. She's totally 100% deflecting this. There's no innovation because people want to consume. To have innovation, you actually have to save and plan for the future. Have R&D and stuff. Well, no one wants to do that because they want to freaking consume. And that's this brings back to another part, uh, uh, one argument of my anti-EMH thing that I have is that that you have to have savings in an economy to grow. You know, EMH will tell you just invest, index your funds, right? But if everybody indexes their funds, no one will produce. No one will take risks to produce more. Because risky behavior gambles out there. You know, entrepreneurs making gambles, which, by the way, those entrepreneurs don't think it's a gamble a lot of times. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They think it's a sure thing. But you need that dynamic risk-taking to continue to grow at 9.2%. So you need some people to not index their funds. And in this case, with the low interest rates, um, it dis, it discourages savings. It discourages, um, you know, innovation and capital creation because people will consume their money away. And especially, I mean, that's exactly what the inflation target is. You're, you're targeting 2% of people's money disappearing. And on a cash flow basis, that doesn't maybe matter because everybody is being inflated at the same rate. But on a savings, on the savings side, that matters hugely. Um, like if the inflation target was negative 2%, would you still be able to get 10.2 or 9.2 on your indexing of your funds? No, probably not. So, um, you know, that, that 9.2%, is just the average of all of the things in the economy. And if everybody indexed their funds, that would not be the same thing. So yes, some people can, that is their investment strategy, indexing their funds. And some people, you know, they have a different investment strategy. And that 9.2% actually relies on those other people. Anyway. So she's saying here that it's not her fault, that it's not the, the Fed's fault when it's 100% their fault that there's no productivity growth. And uh, it's also the government's fault for all the red tape. They, they have a part to play here too. That's a wrap for this week, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and Markets or bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash donate. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share this content out there to everybody that you're connected with. Thank you so much. Uh, don't forget to tell people the most important thing they can do for their financial future is buy a Bitcoin. Peace.